0: Hey, podcast fans. This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast
1: Network. Hi, everyone. Before we start the show, we want to ask you a little favor. Could you pause the podcast? And not yet. Not yet. Head over to your podcatcher of choice, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, wherever else, and leave us a review. Even though we're three years into doing this, it still is a huge help, and it helps other people find us so that we can put archaeology in their ears. Thanks. I'm with the show. Mm -hmm. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology,
2: and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we have yet more beautiful, new to us, Patreon subscribers to shout out. So thank you, Ron, Grace, and Connor for supporting the show. It means the world and the moon and the stars to us. It means so much. And Saturn.
1: It also means that we are a mere two patrons away from our 100 patron benchmark and that special all patron gift that is now designed and ready to exist in real life. It's happening.
2: Yeah, yeah it's really it's really good. It's, it's good. It's very really good. really good. Um and and also if like <laughs> it's looking like we may surpass that by the time this hits your ears, dear listener, and that's okay. If we just like with our 50 patron gift, we got a few more people over the line and that's fine. We we get in here. Get in here. Come on. Come on. So that's all great. That's all good. You know what else is good? What? What what else is good? (laughs) I was waiting for someone to answer. (laughs) (laughs) I got
1: news. It's only me
2: on the other end here. A far away. What? (laughs) Um. So what else is good? It's not doing too much of a good thing. So long time listeners of the show or like really industrious new listeners, because some of you listen to a lot of us at once, which. I mean, thank you. Great. Wonderful. But, but gosh. Whoa. whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Um, whoa. You will know that for the past two years, we've leaned in on a very silly joke um, in order to talk about Vikings around the time of the American Thanksgiving holiday. That is only. The only reason why we do that. Arguably only. Is so that we can call the episode, Thanks Viking. Well, no more, friends. We've grown,
1: (laughs) we've matured, and we're moving on from that silly, silly joke. And instead, we're bringing you Thanks (laughs) Glyphing. That's right. This week, we're talking
2: glyphs which Amber will now define for us. Yeah, this is another one of those episodes that we like pencil in the editorial calendar months ago. Like fish people was one of them. And mm, thanks Glyphing came just, first like, just showed up in a cell. <laughs> I'm just like, okay. So thanks Glyphing. glyphs. Broadly speaking, a glyph is any kind of purposeful mark. So one that carries meaning from one person's brain to another. So the term is used in typography, architecture and archaeology. But we're going to stay in our lane today (laughs) and focus on archaeological contexts here. In archaeology, a glyph is a carved or inscribed symbol that may represent a concept. That's an ideogram, a syllable or a word. A logogram. So I love talking about logograms. We all know this about me. <laughs> but an example of an ideogram is the image of a cigarette with a little smoke coming off of it, circled <laughs> with a slash through it. So you, you have to know what a cigarette is and and what one usually does with it. And you have to understand what, that the circle slash translates to, uh, like to <laughs> not allowed or. None of this thing do not do this thing um, and and you have to put those two things together to get the whole concept of the place in where the place in which I am currently standing right now I can't smoke in it smoking nope. is not permitted
1: yeah and so it's a, a simple symbol that conveys meaning so there are lots of ancient cultures that use some combination of glyphs and logograms in their written languages but this week, we're going to focus on examples from the Aztec and Maya worlds with one small deviation. And I'll be honest, well, it's just sort of, Mm -hmm. we go further back in time than Aztec. It's not, yeah, a little bit. So I'll be honest. When I started researching this episode and trying to figure out how to frame it, I was conflicted as Amber will attest.
2: (laughs) Anna. Yes. Thank you for being
1: honest. I try. Um, I wanted, so I want to talk about how we know what Aztec and Maya glyphs say and so that involves the story of the people who cracked the code which is all very exciting It's like a, a second Rosetta Stone mm. story but on the other hand very colonizing mm. I want this episode to center on these two vastly complex cultures and how glyphs fit into those societies because ultimately when people use glyphs or pictograms to write things down it's meant for the people who know how to read them <laughs> or at least who can recognize certain symbols and what they are meant to communicate communicate within that society. And so in a way talking about the glyphs as a cipher to be decoded by non-members of those cultures feels off, feels backwards. Yeah. But we sort of have to talk about that story because it explains how we know what we know. And so with that caveat, let's start off with talking about how the Maya and Aztec used glyphs and then and then we'll get to the decoding at the end. I don't want that to be the
2: focus, but but it is, you know, it, it yeah. comes into play. So oh, that's a great point. I'm glad that you, I'm glad you landed on that, that approach. And thank you. This sounds very, I don't know. Does this sound disingenuous? I mean it. I believe you. Okay. <laughs> great. I just, I'm Let's just, continue really, to well, learn I'm just together. really well rested. And i just like very effusive oh, today. What is so. that like? Well, oh. Anna, it's pretty great. <laughs> oh, I'll try it sometime. <laughs> so, um, Let's start off with Aztec writing. So, everyone, remember, both the Aztec and Maya cultures are still around. They're not gone. They aren't gone. In the case of the modern Aztec, who actually referred to themselves as Mexica, we're talking about people who speak Nahuatl. Nahuatl is a language, or by some definitions, a member of the Uto-Aztecan language family, still spoken today by roughly 1.7 million people. Most, that is a lot of people. Um, Most of whom live in, uh, what is today central Mexico, with some pockets in what's now the U.S. as well. So, Aztec writing was preserved in codices, which the singular of which is codex. That's not what they called them, though. Since the 19th century, the word codex has been applied to all Mesoamerican pictorial pictorial (laughs) manuscripts, regardless of format or date, despite the fact that pre-colonization Aztec manuscripts were not actually full texts, So we'll get there in a minute. Aztec codices were usually made from long sheets of fig bark paper, amate or stretched deerskins sewn together to form long and narrow strips. Others were painted on broad pieces of cloth. The usual formats include screen-fold books, or accordion fold if you prefer, uh, strips known as tiras, rolls, and various size cloths, also known as lanzos. The actual writing system (laughs) combined ideographic or symbolic writing with phonetic symbols specific to Nahuatl. A very reductive way to describe it would be a combination of emojis and rebuses that use ideas and syllables to get meaning across. The ideographic part of the writing comes across in abstract concepts such as death, represented by a corpse wrapped for burial. Night, drawn as a black sky and a closed eye. So it's a difference from nap, I guess. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can but nap, so like, whether a, it's dark a, out, whether it's light out. Yeah. Um, sun independent.
2: War by a shield and a club and speech illustrated as a little scroll issuing from the mouth of the person who is talking.
1: A little speech bubble, but it's a speech scroll. Isn't that oh, cool?
2: Isn't that fun? I love that. Yeah. Ah, the concepts of motion and walking were indicated by a trail of footprints. Do, 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 Great. Do, do. I'm getting this. A glyph could be used as a rebus to represent a different word with the same sound or similar pronunciation. This is like cuneiform.
1: It's, I mean, yeah. Th- yes, it overlaps like, in a
2: lot of The ways the one thing with... that I know. <laughs> like, that's what I'm saying. It's just like, oh, okay. This
1: works. Yeah, and this is it, where it starts to get a little complicated, but. Okay, great. Know. Yeah, well. <laughs>
2: great. So um, this is especially evident in the glyphs of town names. For example, the glyph for Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital, was represented by combining two pictograms, stone tetl and cactus. Notly. Yeah,
1: or noctli, maybe. I don't know. I apologize um, to any we, know what speakers listening. Yeah,
2: we gotta get that out. We gotta get that. Yeah, the app. we do. Yeah. So we could say a thing right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was no set direction for reading Aztec glyphs. You could start from right to left, left to right, any direction where the sounds go in the correct order to form the words. So you have to be aware of context in order to read an inscription correctly. Okay. Yeah. yeah, That's fine. Mm-hmm. That's like, I guess you would use the same kind of, oh, it's like... um like crossword puzzles, that not crossword puzzles, like word searches, where it can yeah. be in different orders, in any
1: directions. Yeah, and, and so and you start reading, and you go, "Wait, that's not right." So you yeah, go to the other end. But but it
2: would be like what I'm if I'm reading this correctly. It's sort of the author picks a direction mm-hmm. and goes uh, with it. Yeah, yeah. But I it is see how consistent
1: that would, throughout the text. Yeah, I could Whatever see how that text would be really,
2: um, really handy if you were. Um, putting like captions on something or or sort of like in different yeah. parts or of... maybe if you're right versus left-handed um, yeah and so that that's yeah okay
1: that makes sense not if you're not if you're carving but if you're writing something with paint or ink
2: and yeah Anyway, Um, So for a very, very deep linguistic dive into Nahuatl glyphs and the whole history of linguistic arguments about them, we'll have a link in the show notes to a blog post by Magnus Hansen, an assistant professor at the University of Copenhagen, who studies the relations between indigenous politics and the revitalization of endangered minority languages, including Nahuatl.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to clarify, like, yes, it's a blog post, but. I checked on this guy, and he is, in fact, a Nahuatl. I checked on him. (laughs) He's uh, studying Nahuatl. So a little extra context here. It's my understanding, though I am clearly no expert, that only certain classes of Aztec society, the priesthood and nobles, but mostly just the priesthood, would be able to fully read and write. So other members of the population probably knew what certain symbols meant, especially if it had to do with place names, deities, or other important aspects of daily life. But literacy was somewhat limited. So if you study Aztec or Maya writing and would like to talk to us more about it or point us to good resources, we welcome that. So hit us up on Twitter. Or tell us what qualifies as a noble or priesthood classmate. Tell us things. Who was that? We love to learn. So you can hit us up on Twitter at... Dirt Podcast or email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com please and thank you
2: and if you know things about other things we talk about and you'd be willing to share yeah tell don't, us don't wait we for us want to, to learn all the stuff <laughs> put yeah. things in our brains please yes please so unlike what happened with the Maya codices which we'll get to in the second half of the show A teaser sort of, but got to heads previously. Up, it, it really it, it stinks it's bad Um, After Spanish colonizers barged into Aztec territory and got to colonizing, the Aztec continued to produce painted manuscripts. The Spanish came to accept and rely on them as valid and potentially important records. The um, indigenous tradition of pictorial documentation and expression continued strongly in the Valley of Mexico, several generations after the arrival of Europeans. The latest examples of this tradition reach into the early 17th century CE. Yeah. The key factor and the reason we, so not 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 us not me and anna No, nope. um, experts <laughs> we academe <laughs> again the dirt podcast at gmail.com uh, are able to read any of these manuscripts is that the spanish introduced latin script which was used to record a large body of aztec prose poetry and documentation such as testaments administrative documents legal letters and so forth in a matter of decades pictorial writing was completely replaced with the latin alphabet that said, there are some bits of Nahuatl that weren't accurately represented in Latin script, like certain long vowels and the glottal stop that is everywhere in that is everywhere in Nahuat, including the word Nahuatl. Yeah, at the end, it's sort of
1: an imperceptible glottal stop.
2: Yeah, Nahuatl. it's a hamza. Yes, right.
1: Same. Mm-hmm. That's same principle. Same mouth shape, throat well, shape. Well, yeah,
2: yeah. Yes, yeah, so it's not actually in your mouth. <laughs>
1: It's in the mouth box. (laughs) I'm so tired.
2: So minor historical sidebar in 1570 in a surprisingly cool move. Yeah.
1: For for monarchs of Spain at this time, actually.
2: Yeah. so, So at this point they had like the don't enslave those people. And then this. Pretty much, about but a, this this is better. A century, okay, because this one actually worked. <laughs> this this was more effective, you should say. Yeah, yeah. So, King Philip II of Spain decreed that Nahuatl should become the official language of the colonies of New Spain in order to facilitate communication between the Spanish and natives of the colonies. This led to Spanish missionaries teaching Nahuatl to populations living as far south as Honduras and El Salvador. Well, what's today, Honduras and El Salvador? Yeah, exactly. During the 16th and 17th centuries, classical Nahuatl was used as a literary language, and a large body of texts from that period exists today. They include histories, chronicles, poetry, theatrical works, Christian canonical works, ethnographic descriptions, or the, the you know, 16th and 17th century equivalent of ethnographic descriptions. Yeah, yep. Um, And administrative documents. The Spanish permitted a great deal of autonomy in the local administration of indigenous towns during this period. And in many Nahuatl-speaking towns, the language was the de facto administrative language, both in writing and speech. A large body of Nahuatl literature was composed during this period, including the Florentine Codex. It's covered in spinach. (laughs) A a 12-volume compendium of Aztec culture compiled by Franciscan friar Bernardino de Sahagún. Sahagún? Brunch joke.
1: Sahagún. Yep. So before we take a break, let's look even farther back in time, because there is evidence from the city of Teotihuacan in what is today Mexico that glyphs were in use well before the Aztecs even got rolling. So this comes from a September 2020 piece from Reuters, a quote. Among the many mysteries surrounding the ancient Mexican metropolis of Teotihuacan, one has been especially hard to crack. How did its residents use the many signs and symbols found on its murals and ritual sculptures? The city's towering pyramids reopened to visitors earlier this month as pandemic restrictions eased. But perhaps its most interesting and extensively excavated neighborhood, featuring a patio floor with rare painted symbols, remains off-limits to tourists. The discovery in the 1990s of the puzzling red glyphs, most laid out in neat columns, has led a growing number of scholars to question the long-held view that writing was absent from the city, which thrived from roughly 100 BCE to 550 CE. Teotihuacan, which lies in a dusty plain about 30 miles or 50 kilometers outside the modern Mexican capital, was once the largest city in the Americas, home to at least a 100,000 people. Yet much is unknown about the civilization that inhabited it, including what language its inhabitants spoke and whether they developed a system of writing akin to that of the Aztecs who dominated the area some eight centuries later and revered its ruins. Experts have debated several theories for the glyphs. They say they may have been used to represent symbols used to teach writing or place names of subjugated tribute paying cities, or even as signs used in disease curing rituals. Art historian, Tatiana Valdez, author of a book published this year on the glyphs of Teotihuacan, says the patio's 42 glyphs, many in linear sequences, amount to the longest text ever found at the city's ruins. And Valdez said, quote, I think Teotihuacan used hieroglyphics and used them well because we found so many, end quote, and she's in this case pointing to thousands of mostly clay figurines with painted or incised glyphs that have been found on the site. Valdez also remarked that the sheer number of figurines found with glyphs on tiny headdresses or on their foreheads could mean some access to writing was available to commoners. And just a editor's note here or a podcaster's note. I'm not clear whether it's because these figurines are so, so numerous or if it's because of what's depicted that, that Valdez thinks it's, um, that, that some text was available to pretty much everyone. But I suspect it's the former because they're just sort of all over the place. Back to the Reuters article. A painted mural uncovered in the 1960s in Teotihuacan shows what appears to be a priest holding a book. It was a hugely important discovery, according to Christopher Helmke, a leading scholar of the city's writing system at the University of Copenhagen. Maybe he knows that other guy. Probably does. Helmke cautioned against expecting texts on public monuments or sculptures in the city and said writing in Teotihuacan was probably mostly confined to its books. And he suggested that future advances will likely come from new mural or ceramic finds, but not books, which are unlikely to turn up due to the speed of deterioration of the paper or animal skins used by ancient scribes. So Hmm. there was possibly a system of writing similar to Aztec glyphs that well predated by by about 800 years predated the Aztec. Yeah. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll delve into Maya glyphs.
0: It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. culturomedia.com. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members.
2: Uh, we're back and we are still at it with Maya Glyphs. Uh, so this episode is the glyph that keeps on glyphing.
1: You're welcome for that joke that I wrote for you. <laughs>
2: um, examples of Maya writing and resources available to understand it are limited. If you think back to episode 151 at over on the or just scroll down in your podcast feed, um, yeah, or that <laughs> sure. in our episode on libraries, you may recall at the end of the episode, um, I discussed. Um, the library that wasn't, um, and <laughs> Spanish friar Diego de Landa, who ordered as many as twenty-seven, literally priceless, um, irreplaceable, irreplaceable Maya manuscripts um, to be burned in the 16th century. What a guy! So here, um, so I'm going to share here information pulled from um, an introduction to Maya hieroglyphs, co-written by the aforementioned Christoph Helmke. Uh, So Maya writing consisted of a relatively elaborate set of glyphs, which were laboriously painted on ceramics, walls, and bark paper codices, um, carved in wood and stone and molded in stucco. Carved and molded glyphs were painted, but the paint has rarely survived uh, because of that environment we just talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as of 2008, the sound of about 80% of Maya writing could be read and the meaning of about 60% could be understood with varying degrees of certainty, enough to give a comprehensive idea of its structure. 2008 was not that long ago. So it's... And yet. And yet. <laughs> um Maya texts were usually written in blocks, arranged in columns two blocks wide, with each block corresponding to a noun or verb phrase. The blocks within the columns were read left to right, top to bottom, and would repeat it until there were no more columns left. Within a block, glyphs were arranged to be read from left to right and top to bottom. Sometimes glyphs got smushed together so that an element of one glyph would replace part of another. So sometimes you'd have an ideogram glyph that represented the concept of a word, but you could also phonetically spell out that word or do some combination of both. Um, So you could have the single glyph, ba'alam, or jaguar, and that picture is called ba'alam. But you could also write out the syllables and it would have the same meaning.
1: But it would look totally different.
2: Yeah. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. A person who studied cuneiform. But okay. Does well, it make sense to you? Does listener? it make sense to you? <laughs> yeah. So you can have. Um, so it's it's like having. Um, it's like how rebuses work. Where yeah, exactly. when you do a rebus puzzle, you can look at it, and um, so you could have like a picture of you could have a picture of an eye, and then the word witness. And so it can be an eyewitness or you can have um, a the first thing that comes to my mind is you could have the word IGA, which is a grocery store that doesn't exist here anymore, but I think still exists in Australia. But oh, um, it shout big, out to our Australian listeners. Well, it, was, it was in my hometown growing up. Um, oh, OK. And so uh, you can have that as one of them. So it stands as the sound or the letter or mm-hmm. an actual I. Or you have eyeball, and you have an eye, and then a little beach ball, and eyeball. That's the word. So that's just the images. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, or and and then you could have the, the ball of eyeball be the first part of the word balloon. So you could ha- well that's an even better example. So you could have a picture of a balloon and be like balloon, or you can have a ball and then and then o o n. And then O-O-N as a balloon. So it no longer has the meaning of ball at all. It's just that sound. Or you uh, could have a picture of a beach ball and then a picture of a
1: Canadian loon. Balloon. Too much? Yes. Well,
2: I think I illustrated the point, but we can you continue did. to. I'm like just being a silly goose. <laughs> your, oh, which we could depict with the picture of a Canadian loon. Because we have a limited understanding of fowl. Mm? Absolutely. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's consult the Canadian Museum of History about this. <laughs> the Maya considered writing to be a sacred gift granted to them by the gods. From the very beginning, the Maya used writing as a propaganda tool rather than a, as a means of recording accurate details of history. Sounds familiar. In a hierarchical society where the elite competed for prestige and leadership positions, writing was used to reinforce a ruler's military power and to legitimize his descent from noble ancestors and the gods. Writings on stone monuments were designed to place rulers in the most favorable light possible, and ancient sculptural inscriptions deal primarily with historical events, marriages, births, military campaigns, and victories, rulers, and other dynastic affairs. Mm-hmm.
1: Hey, Amber, how about some archaeology? Oh, I would love some. Let's take a look at the site of San Bartolo in what is today Guatemala, where there are some incredible, beautifully preserved murals that contain some of the earliest known examples of Maya writing. So I'm quoting here from a 2006 paper in Science Express, which is titled Early Maya Writing at San Bartolo, Guatemala. (laughs) To the Point. It's by William Saturno, David Stewart, and Boris Beltran. Quote, The ruins of San Bartolo, Guatemala, contain a sample of Maya hieroglyphic writing dating to the late pre-classic period, 400 B.C. to 200 C.E. The writing appears on preserved painted walls and plaster fragments buried within the pyramidal structure known as Las Pinturas, which was constructed in discrete phases over several centuries. Samples of carbonized wood that are closely associated with the writing have calibrated radiocarbon dates of 200 to 300 B.C.E., this early Maya writing implies that a developed Maya writing system was in use centuries earlier than previously thought, approximating a time when we see the earliest scripts elsewhere in Mesoamerica, quote. Um, also about San Bartolo, this time coming from the Archaeological Institute of America, quote, the discovery of mural paintings at San Bartolo in 2001 revealed an elaborate artistic program of mythology and texts from the late pre-classic period. Again, 400 BCE to 250 CE-ish. Uh, 14 meters of intact ancient wall paintings, 14 meters, that's, that's a lot, considering the environment, uh, constitute the most extensive preservation of pre-classic Maya mural painting yet discovered. Today, the outstanding murals of San Bartolo exist both as buried in-situ wall paintings accessed by excavation tunnels and as a jigsaw puzzle of broken fragments housed in the archaeological laboratory. Murals are associated with four buildings within the earlier phases of Las Pinturas. The murals depict images of sacrifice by four young lords, scenes in the life of the maize god, coronation rituals, and a scene of ancestral emergence from a sacred cave. The exterior murals depict figures standing at the corners of the building with a painted, modeled stucco sculpture on its cornice. And then I went, hey, what's a cornice? So I looked it up because it's a word that I I see, but I never... Mm -hmm actually know what it means. And so I learned a cornice is a decorative edge or molding at the top of a building or piece of furniture. Mm -hmm. There we go. Continuing that AIA post... Quote, building on 11 years of collaborative, multidisciplinary research, this project has a unique dual focus of on-site preservation and conservation, as well as off-site curation of the corpus of mural fragments. They're doing a lot of like illustration of the fragments and a lot of, kind of preserving the murals by copying them. <sighs> Ultimately, this research will be able to reconstruct the original ancient artworks of San Bartolo and reveal the complete mural complex. The San Bartolo Mural Project is rediscovering the lost, painted scenes of ancestor veneration and creation mythology created by the Maya over 2,000 years ago, end quote. So that's very cool. And we will have links in the show notes where you can see some images from these murals. I also think, I'm pretty sure, that friend of the show, Mary Clark, has worked or is working at San Bartolo. So maybe she could come talk to us more about the projects. Mary, hop into our DMs, please. So we'll take one more quick break, and then we'll wrap up with the timeline of Maya glyph translation and decoding.
2: So now we're in the 16th century, ugh, uh, which was arguably the worst time for <laughs> it's the worst time to be a Maya glyph. Um So it was it was a terrible time to be a lot of things, to be totally honest. Uh, but if you were the Spanish Empire or a lot the, of major
1: the, empires, really.
2: Yeah. If you if you were an empire or if you were a um, like a religious conversion movement. You were doing okay then. But if you were a person. Anything else. (laughs) Great. Um, So the following timeline um, comes to you, dear listeners, through us from Nova over at PBS. Um, So the quest to decipher Maya hieroglyphs began with the same Spanish invaders whose hegemonic rule did so much to wipe out the ancient Maya script itself. Um, Among them was... Uh, conquistador Hernando Cortez, who led massacres in Mexico, but also, um, some scholars believe, uh, was the person responsible for getting the famous Dresden Codex, um, which we talked about at the end of our libraries mm-hmm. episode. Um, he maybe was the one that got it shipped back to Spain. So another was Diego de Landa, um, who, as we mentioned previously, um, was really bent on, um, converting indigenous populations to Christianity. So he uh, was the guy behind the burning in 1562 of hundreds, if not thousands, of Maya uh, bark paper books uh, which he felt were heretical. Yet four years later, Delanda wrote a manuscript about the Maya called uh, Relation of the Things of the Yucatan, in English. Um, Yeah. So um, funnily enough this manuscript in the Dresden codex proved essential in the later decoding of the maya cal- the mayan calendar system and ad- their advanced understanding of astronomy and mathematics so um but i don't think we need to give him credit for that no he's the worst um so in 1832 CE, um, actual decipherment of uh mayan glyphs uh began and that was thanks to an eccentric european uh, <laughs> uh, whose name was constantine raffinesque who boasted of having dabbled in more than a dozen professions from archaeology to zoology a thing you could do in the early 19th century yeah um, or apparently now if you just got enough money like that's well,
1: that was true for our boy <laughs> constantine as well that-
2: yeah. Um, so, his insatiable thirst for knowledge um, that led him, uh, led Raffinesque, to a reproduction of just five pages of the Dresden Codex. He was able to crack uh, Mayan counting. In 1832, Raffinesque declared in his newsletter, the Atlantic Journal and Friend of Knowledge, oh, he had a substack? Gosh, um, that the dots and bars seen in Maya glyphs um, represented simple numbers, a dot equaled one and a bar equaled five. Later findings proved him right and also revealed that the Maya even had a symbol for zero, which appeared on Mesoamerican carvings as early as 36 BCE. So um, zero didn't make it to Western Europe until the 12th century, but. But it sure was elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. much earlier. Much yeah. earlier. Um, mm-hmm. This was another one of those things that like nobody bothered learning Arabic so they didn't get a lot of stuff like in science yep. and math. So it was sort of everybody else <laughs> was like getting there. Um, so Europe so it was, was like, how do I describe nothing? <laughs> so by 1880, as with many early glyph related discoveries, um, serendipity May have played a role in the next major step. I just gotta say it like that. Serendipity, serendipity, duda. A librarian with a penchant for mathematics named Ernst Forstmann had just just happened to work at the Royal Library in Dresden, Germany, which owned the Dresden Codex and gave it its name. Um, he had also he also had access to Landa's relation.
1: Um, yeah, the, I don't know why they shortened it like that, it's just the relation of things in the Yucatan, whatever,
2: yeah. Um, using his unique skill set, Furstermann decoded the astronomy tables the Maya used to determine when, for example, to wage war. He also deciphered the Maya system for measuring time, now called the calendar round. Um Makes it sound like a song. I'll say it differently. He also decided the, deciphered the Maya system for measuring time, now called the calendar round. In this system, date cycle once every 52 years, much like date cycle annually in the Gregorian calendar that we use here in the U.S. Yep. Mm-hmm. Continuing this timeline, in
1: 1881... Britain's Alfred Maudslay was a respected diplomat, but he would be best remembered for his work as an amateur Mayanist. Fascinated by scholars writing on the Maya and by new advancements in photography, Maudslay set out to create as complete a record as possible of the civilization's architecture and art. Using a large format glass plate camera, which I'm pretty sure was just a camera in 1881, he captured highly detailed images of Maya sites, including clear close-ups of the glyphs. He also prepared papier-mâché casts of several carvings from which accurate drawings were later made. I've titled this section 1930s, Some Guy Beefs It. By the 1930s, British researcher Eric Thompson was the world's foremost expert in glyph studies. His achievements included deciphering science related to the calendar and astronomy, as well as identifying new words from the Maya lexicon. Thompson also developed a numerical cataloging technique for each glyph. So this enabled experts to easily discuss symbols that had yet to be fully understood or identified. So it basically had a a catalog number. So you could say, like, let's talk about glyph G1045, and everyone else would know what you're talking about instead of saying, it's the one with a squiggly bit and then a cat head. So useful, but Thompson undid that good work and glyph studies nearly came to a halt during this time in large part because Thompson had most scholars convinced that each of the symbols in glyphs stood for entire words or ideas and he did not back down from that particular hill. Cool. Yep. Jumping all the way forward to 1952, while glyph studies languished in the West a Russian linguist in Moscow was making his own groundbreaking discoveries. In 1952, Yuri Norozov postulated that the individual symbols in Maya glyphs stood for phonetic sounds, much like English letters do. Norozov knew that Maya had too many glyphs to be a true alphabet, because there's like more than 800. Uh, but he determined that written Maya, like Egyptian hieroglyphics, contained a combination of these elements, because West. Spoken in in spoken Maya is chik'in, which I enjoy, and k'in is the word for sun. the hand represents the syllable chi, as Norozov concluded. Fortunately, American scholars Michael and Sophie Coe began publishing Norozov's papers in the U.S. in the late 1950s. Otherwise, his important, though incomplete, findings might have been inaccessible to Western scholars until the end of the Cold War. And then finally, in 1973, concerned that Maya research was limited to a few experts with special access to key resources. What? That never happens in archaeology. Merle Green Robertson, an American artist based at the classic Maya site of Palenque, built a center where anyone could go to study the city's art and inscriptions. In December 1973, 30 people came to the center at Robertson's invitation, forming the first major scholarly conference held at a Maya site. Within hours, and with a combination of luck and an intimate knowledge of the glyphs, attendees Linda Shirley and Peter Matthews accomplished something extraordinary. They unveiled most of Palenque's dynastic history, including the life stories of six rulers. A very productive conference. Yeah. So those are the, the major highlights of the decipherment process, though there are plenty of other bits in there which you can read about
2: in the show notes. Yeah, and that, dear listeners, is going to do it for this episode. So we hope you enjoyed it. Um, we also hope you'll go check out some Google image searches or the show notes for pictures of what we've been talking about this whole time, since it's pretty tough to adequately give you a look at the pictorial writing system in an audio medium.
1: Squiggle, squiggle, curvy line, three dots. Yeah, it doesn't work. And we'll be sure to post some examples on social media. So find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast, on Twitter as at Dirt Podcast, and on Instagram as at The Dirt
2: Pod. And head over to our website, thedirtpod.com, for all of that, plus merch, plus the link to our Patreon, all of our back catalog, boatloads of resources for your research, and so much more. So much more.
1: Thanks, everybody, for listening. Don't forget to write us a review. Leave us some stars. We really, really appreciate it. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.
0: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.